1: During the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business.
0: What we are talking about today is housing, renting versus buying. And I'm excited for this because we like taking topics that generally, well, not always, but sometimes- make people have very strong <laughs> feelings, one way or the other, particularly life insurance term versus whole universal life. and we also sometimes like poking the bear, Joshua, I think you a little bit more than I at times, but I'm learning how to needle a little bit better, which is fun. so I'm excited to to dive into today because I've heard a lot, both looking on the internet and from a good amount of financial mm-hmm. coaches, where it's like renting is throwing away money and I hear that more than the, you know, how buying a house is this panacea or that buying a house is a terrible decision. So more often I hear renting is worse than buying, but I do hear it on the other side that like, Hey, you actually should not buy a house. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to dive in and hear what your thoughts are. I'll share what I've heard and just hopefully give people some alternative perspectives or alternate, maybe the word I'm looking for. Perspectives, if they have an ingrained belief about which is inherently better than the other.
1: Yeah. And the housing decision is, there's a lot of emotion built in with it. And part of why people have such strong feelings, partially because they're handed down from their parents who have such strong feelings or from yeah. gurus that they may listen to who have very strong feelings, is that. We have this natural desire and we build really strong feelings around really big decisions so that psychologically we don't feel bad about ourselves. And whether you are buying or whether you are renting, it is a huge decision. Your housing is the largest part of your budget, buying or renting. The only thing that rivals it is when you add up all the costs of your car. Yeah. Right. It's it's those two things. Yeah. It, health care, including insurance, is also pretty high up there. Not quite as high as housing, though.
0: Yeah. But if you look at it, especially from a buying standpoint, it certainly is like the probably the single biggest purchase.
1: And renting is your biggest part of your budget, just like your mortgage is your biggest part of your budget in either scenario. And so there's a lot at stake, both Financially and psychologically, that's wrapped up in this decision. And especially when you're talking with clients, it's really important to have the understanding of how much is at stake. For clients, this is a massive part of their budget, it's a massive part of their cash flow, and it is a massive psychological attachment and emotions attached to it. And so we want to be very careful. Number one, about draw falling into these traps of one is always better than the other. But we also want to be careful about how we present it to clients, especially when we're talking about the thing that clients are not going to be believing from their get-go. Right. Where would you like to start? I mean, other than that, start.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that based on where we started from i think it might be helpful to talk a little bit about why these beliefs are there not take too long Mm -hmm. but just like why are some of these beliefs that you know renting is throwing away money or buying a house is like a smart financial decision or even those that say buying a house is a terrible financial decision just kind of where some of these really strong beliefs came from so
1: we can look at historical origins of the United States and how in a Europe out of their medieval tradition, people would farm the land, but they didn't own the land. So it could be taken away from them at any point by the Lord. And so the idea of being able to own land in America, right? not the house, but the land was like this huge
0: thing of taking control of your destiny. Okay, so maybe a little bit closer in time period, (laughs) <laughs> would be helpful <laughs> but I think that that
1: it's important to understand that historical context because yeah. a lot of our current beliefs sort of just evolved over time out of that belief, out of that not belief but reality
0: and it's a good uh, point to mention too that what was it back in the early twentieth century? you know the down payments were certainly not twenty percent or less. I think it was right. like fifty percent seventy five percent or more that you needed. <laughs> Houses
1: were also the equivalent of one uh, a year and a half to three years salary, really? yeah, for the median person, wow. yeah, so housing has grown a lot, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that you can now do twenty percent down payments or ten percent down payments that mortgages are so much easier to get for the average everyday person that we've democratized home purchasing. And so when everyone's able to buy a home, demand goes up, and when demand goes up, prices fall. So yeah, when people look at, again, it's a lot of times you have to be careful of, well, yeah, you had to take 50% down, true, but 50% down was a much smaller amount relative to the median income back then. Got it, that's a good point to make. Yeah. So all of that to be said, Oftentimes we have these historical things and, and our beliefs evolve over time as a result of them, but they're no longer relevant. Yeah. Both the down payment thing, the European feudalism thing, you know, all of that stuff where, you know, the beliefs evolved out of that time period, but that's not relevant to today's society. So we have to re-question whether the beliefs that were handed down are still relevant as well. Right. As far as the idea of home ownership being end-all and be-all, it's a very simple equation, which is you rent for 30 years, you have nothing to show for it. You pay a mortgage for 30 years, you have a house to show for it. Now, keep in mind, this is a very simplistic view of what's going on in the person's financial life, and it's highly, highly misleading, but that's where it comes from is this simplistic. Oh, well, I've got these two choices and then everything else in the person's life is we're going to ignore, but we're just going to look at these two choices. And that's kind of where that belief that renting is throwing money away is coming from. Got it. Shall we delve into that a little bit more? Or do you want to talk about
0: the other side first? Well, just in terms of you know, the things that we also said we are cover or we would cover, I think it is important to say the first bullet we have is while well, home ownership is beneficial, renting is not throwing money away. So I think going to that and just speaking more to that would be helpful.
1: So let's give a fictional scenario, theoretical scenario. Okay. okay. The numbers that I'm going to present are pretty relevant to California. You have to adjust your numbers based on where you live. And when I say California, I don't mean San Francisco or the west side of Los Angeles. But this idea of renting being throwing money away. So let's look at a $400,000 purchase of a home. And we've got $3,000 in total monthly costs. This is going to be the mortgage, the additional insurance costs, taxes, routine maintenance, that kind of stuff. You could rent the exact same property for about $2,000 a month. So that statement that that was made earlier of, yeah, but at the end of 30 years, you have nothing. That assumes that the person takes that $1,000 difference, puts $1,000 in a trash can every month, and lights it on fire. That's the assumption. Okay. Most people won't go to that extreme. (laughs) They may not save it wisely but they won't go to that extreme. but if we were to take that same that house for over 30 years with four percent appreciation which is a generous level of appreciation the statistics on five to six percent growth are completely misleading and absolutely not factual although they're said by realtors all the time but a very generous four percent appreciation And we're looking at a house that you own outright 30 years later that is worth $1.3 million. And this is the math that gets people to go, yeah, renting is throwing money away. Except if over that 30-year period, that person that's renting is throwing $1,000 a month into their investments. Mm -hmm. If it's an S&P 500 with an expected return of 8% over a 30-year period, you would have $1.36 million,
0: $60,000
1: more than you would in the value of the house. And I would argue that the value of the stock portfolio is even greater because you can sell $40,000 to take a worldwide trip. It's really hard to sell the downstairs bathroom. Good point now of course people will throw in the tax advantages of home ownership great we can talk about the tax advantages of investing into a retirement plan and we can trade one barb for another with regards to that so but it 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 does demonstrate the idea that home ownership is not throwing money away
0: and i think that's a really there is so much nuance and detail and barbing i think they could go on Mm -hmm. between either side but just that high level look, unless you light the money on fire and if you chose to invest it, it could turn out into an investment that is potentially even larger, more li- well, potentially more liquid as well. So that's a really good point.
1: So now let's talk about the other side, shall we? So let's, do it. let's say that you are dumb if you buy a house. Yeah. And a lot of this comes from A lot of the factual problems with home ownership and then those things being amplified and sort of juiced on steroids with because of people having oftentimes negative experiences. Yeah. Not to target one individual guru, but there are gurus out there whose messages are shaped very dramatically by their personal life experiences. And so just for a completely theoretical example, a guru that built up their own personal real estate inventory, over leveraged in the real estate inventory, didn't manage it uh, well, not because they're dumb, but because they were young and, and still learning went through a massive bankruptcy as a result of it. And now their most emotional, aggressive aspects of their advice are tied to a pendulum swing away from that. Just a purely theoretical example. Obviously. And this is not to pick on that particular person, which is why I'm not naming names. It's this is how humans are. We do have emotional pendulum swings. And people who are on the other side that particular guru is not in this camp, by the way, who say that buying a home is stupid. Many of that comes out of they were burned. In fact, the numbers of people who think buying a home is stupid spiked after, is it, do you want to take a guess? What year? 2007 and
0: eight. You are amazing. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And it's not to say that, that doesn't mean that buying a home is the end all and be all but we don't want to look at a really bad set of circumstances a really bad set of decisions a really bad of uh, personal decisions a really bad set of government actions all combining together to paint this broad brush about owning homes being bad and especially not to look at some of the significant drawbacks of home ownership and then amplify those into Overwhelmingly negating any positives. Yeah. It's neither this great thing nor is this a horrible thing. There are very distinct advantages and disadvantages to both buying and renting. And it's about balancing those advantages and disadvantages with your own personal life.
0: Yep. And yeah. Eddie just commented, he's like, usually renting is worse in the long term since you're not gaining equity in the rental space. Of course, I always suggest that people starting to live on their own rent for some time to get used to the needs of living on your own, plus the first-time home buyer courses, mm-hmm. you know, as being a beneficial tool for people. And I know that there's a lot more detail in there, such as, you know, not just if people are living on their own for the first time, but how secure they are and where they're living, if they're like a Garrett who moves every four and a half months versus someone who is really looking to settle down and, and knows where they want to live and all these other things. But those are definitely some really good, as we're saying, like broad brush starting points. Yeah, the
1: only thing that I would correct with what Eddie said is the idea that renting, you don't build equity. And while that's true, that is negating the idea that you could use the additional cash flow to amplify your retirement, to amplify saving for starting a business, to amplify a number of different aspects of your life.
0: It's a really good point. And she earlier had mentioned no one, well, he didn't say no, and I don't want to paint your response to you with a broad brush. But like, I think he'd said in general, people aren't gonna save that difference. Well, not if they don't have a financial coach.
1: (laughs) That's why they need to hire you guys.
0: Here we go. There's the sales pitch for all of us. I love it. That's also kind of the sales pitch for, you know, we had about term versus whole or universal life. Mm -hmm. And like, why would you ever recommend it if term, whole or universal if term is cheaper? And you're like, well, if people aren't saving for retirement, it's like this forced retirement savings vehicle. Yeah. And in the same way, just like if there is a tool or a coach or someone who can help you take advantage of that, then renting could be beneficial.
1: Yeah. In yeah. I way. mean, it is interesting that the argument that is made about the wealth building of home which is an outside institution is putting a gun to your head and forcing you to put money into a savings account called your house, is the exact same argument that is partially correctly made by whole life insurance agents. An outside institution is putting a gun to your head and forcing you to put money into a savings account. It's just a different savings account.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That was a more eloquent way of making the connection I tried to make. Yeah. and
1: so and there are some really big financial benefits to rent- renting that people tend to undervalue. We talked already about the savings and blah blah blah. But the big financial benefits to renting. Number 1, you have less of a less risk, financial risk when it comes to the property. So As a renter, you are never going to be have the landlord knock on your door and say, "Hey, I need forty thousand dollars this month because the roof is leaking." That is a very real possibility with homeownership, and so you are yes, you're not putting money into equity, but you are also offloading the risk of major repairs, major expenses of. If a property floods and you don't have sufficient insurance, you're going to cover the gap between those two. If an act of God happens that's not covered by the insurance, you're basically SOL. And so those types of offloading of that risk
0: has a real financial impact, a real financial benefit to you. A friend of mine actually bought a house in Seattle. And, you know, there's the idea of, save 1% of your home's price every month towards maintenance. I know it's just a rule of thumb, but this idea like you're going to start saving and hopefully by the time a big repair like an AC going out or the roof caving in or leaking, you have some money saved up. But he was four months into living there when a pipe burst underneath the concrete in the basement. And it was like a 50, I don't think he had, you know, he had homeowner's insurance, but it wasn't covered under that specific, policy and so he had to shell out 50 plus grand within the first four months of of (laughs) buying a home so it's also not like you can't you can't guess or or you can't say this is when things are going to problems are going to happen and i know that because i'm starting to save up for those i'll have enough money in time for when those home repairs happen yeah you may get lucky but you may not that one percent benchmark
1: is completely
0: devoid of reality like (laughs) I was going to say like rule of thumb, but also average costs for property
1: maintenance range in the one to 4% of current market value Mm -hmm. annually, annualized average costs. So 1% of the original purchase price is so under saving to the point of being ridiculous
0: which is good to say because then if you're calculating you know 1% versus what you actually need 2 3 or 4%, that really does change also depending that's 10 certainly thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars a year yeah. difference compared home owning versus renting. And for those
1: of you who are freaking out because you own a home and you're not saving 4% of current market value, that 1 to 4% range is based on the age of the property. <laughs> yeah. It also includes not just repairs, but maintenance and just the things you have to do to keep a property looking like you bought it or better than you bought it.
0: Got it. Let's finish this thought. She had a, and it may be good just to wrap this up with the question where I know it could go very in depth, but she had a question of, what do you think about today's market? Is it a good or bad time to buy? I know that this may be like a whole separate conversation and we have gone through, most of the points, you know, renting is not throwing the money away, benefits of home ownership are overstated, significant financial benefits to renting. So do you wanna, in the last five minutes, kind of tackle this or? I wanna throw out one last benefit of renting. And I think okay. it's one that's, that is
1: really important, which is the flexibility that renting affords you. When you rent, you are always 30 days away once you're out of the original lease period from being able to change your situation, (laughs) whether that's because you need another bedroom because surprise pregnancy, whether that's because you need a downsize, whether that's because whatever. And that is a huge lifestyle, but also a huge financial benefit. One of the big things that oftentimes happens in individuals' lives is people will pass up really good career opportunities because it's too far to commute and people are far less likely to change their housing when they are owning versus renting and that compounding effect of the major determinant of your wealth or one of the major determinant of your health, wealth which is your income that compounding effect of not taking advantage of career opportunities, especially during the first 20 years of a career, can be dramatic. Yeah. So.
0: And I was going to say, I'm here house sitting in my parents' house for six months because I was renting a place in Tucson. And when they said, hey, do you want to do that? Yeah, I would love to escape the Tucson heat for six months. I would love to not pay any rent. We'd love to then put that towards our down payment. And apparently in Arizona, as long as you can find a replacement tenant, you can actually break the lease before Mm -hmm. the year is up. So, you know, the flexibility that it provided for us, is just like, okay, so we could, yeah, the first person we showed it to ended up taking the place. We were out of the lease in a week. We had a place to stay in California for six months and we're saving 1500 bucks a month on that, which can now go towards future down payment. So that's, because of renting and that's not going to be for everyone. We love to have a very nomadic and flexible lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I'm going to and- try
1: that. I'm going to call my mortgage companies. Hey, I want to live with someone else for six months. I'm just going to stop banking mortgage payments for six months. I'll, I'll just see what, I'll report back to you what they say. That cool? That's cool, yeah. right? Yeah, it's definitely cool. So, Okay, now to cheese things. So remind me again of what it what
0: it was. The yeah, and- housing market, the current. We may do this as a separate in-depth topic, but it was like, what do you think of today's housing market? Is it overpriced, et cetera? Okay, so let's start with a
1: basic statement of the housing market is never overpriced, ever. The value of your house is based on what the most anyone will pay for it is. So if you have a house that's worth a million dollars, if someone is willing to pay you $2 million for it, it is not worth a million dollars. It was worth $2 million. If you have a house that is worth a million dollars, if the highest someone is willing to pay you for it is
0: $400,000, you do not have a million dollar house. You have a $400,000 house. <laughs> it's like we were selling, we had a 2003 Jaguar that mm-hmm. someone didn't need. So they gave it to us. We were going to sell it last year. And the Kelly Blue Book was about 3,000 to 3,500. Yeah. And then we checked the blue book again two month, you know, two months ago, and it was mm-hmm. in between five and six thousand. And it's because everything related to COVID, chip shortages, used cars, and it's like right. the car wasn't tech, but it was now worth that. It just not gotten that. better. <laughs> no, it has not gotten. It's probably gotten worse. But you're right. It is now. Then was at least a five thousand five hundred dollars car. But
1: to chief's point of the idea of is is
0: housing likely to continue to go up, right? In this same way, potentially like in the same way that it is now.
1: We say, we say housing is overpriced. And what we're really meaning is we are worried that housing values are going to drop in the future relative to where they are now. Right? Good clarification. And we say housing is underpriced because we believe or hope <laughs> that it's going to go up in the future, right? And so it's really about what our beliefs are about the short-term future when we assign these ideas of overpriced and underpriced. So as far as my beliefs about where housing is going to go, I have no idea because it is such a complex environment. Uh, Housing, just like everything else, is based on supply and demand. Uh, Supply... uh, From the demand side of it, the demand is based on two factors, which is interest rates and unemployment. When interest rates go down, you can afford more of a house. When you make more money, you can afford more of a house. But if everyone is making more money and everyone is getting those lower interest rates, then that means everyone's competing for the same set of houses that are out there. And as a result, you've got a increasing housing prices there are a lot of factors that are happening right now number one people are not wanting to sell their house because of the fact that they've just put a bunch of money into it because they've been home for a year (laughs) they also don't want to sell their house because of the fact that environments like this make people fearful right what if i lose my job and I don't want to buy a new place that has, that's costs more blah 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 right with a higher mortgage. You have a foreclosure moratorium and a rental eviction moratorium that is keeping people from wanting to sell houses. So it's that's limiting and constraining supply. You've got issues related to the government has been by and large, making people whole as a result of the unemployment. And as a result, meaning that they haven't really seen a decrease in money coming in, they just seen a decrease in wages, right? But those are two different things because of unemployment. And so as a result, people are not hurting as much as they normally do during recessions, right? And I'm not saying that it's not hard for some people, but just, by but and it's not as bad as most other recessions because the government is stepping in very heavily. And you've got people not able to spend on trips and other things. And so as a result, they have, they're paying down debt. They're having a good savings building up. You can see that with the broad statistics as well. And as a result, people are comfortable with their current situation because things feel pretty good, even though there's
0: a pandemic going on. And you have more competition people, if I think this is accurate, like being able to leave high paying jobs in big cities, people who are now not attached to work environments who can Mm -hmm. move from San Francisco to Tahoe, for example, or just move to places that were generally less expensive and then drive up housing prices.
1: Yeah. Renters are able to buy houses because they haven't been able to spend on anything else. They pay down their other debts, so they're in a better position. And so this is not to say that this is everyone's experience, but this is a large enough number of people's experiences that it's creating a, a big demand for housing and there's not a big supply. And of course, the pandemic has also increased construction costs and wood costs and concrete costs and everything else, making it harder to build houses and driving up the prices of new construction as well. Again, limiting supply and driving up the supply side of it. So we don't know when that's going to change, but there
0: are a lot of headwinds. I have no idea.
1: Yeah, what I will say is this is a personal thing, completely personal, has no indication. This is not the basis of any advice that I give clients, although I will share this with clients. But my wife and i are sitting on a significant amount of cash right now and the purpose of that cash is a if housing prices drop we're going to look at buying an investment property if there's a significant enough drop and b if that doesn't happen when concrete prices drop and construction prices drop looking at putting in a pool (laughs) right (sighs) And so the, the I say that to say, I don't know, but I am planning for if scenario one happens, this is what we're going to do. If scenario two ha- happens, because I don't know what's scenario going to happen, here's what we're going to do. And so that's one of the things that you can do with clients is instead of talking about what you believe might happen, which is always a dangerous road to get on, talking about, well, here are the two possible scenarios. Right. What would you do in each of these scenarios? What would you want to do in each of these scenarios? And start thinking about how to position yourself to have the flexibility
0: to do either. Awesome. I think that's a great place to stop. Um, Yeah. Thanks, as always. This is fun to dive into and get some clarification around some common misconceptions. And thanks, Chi and Eddie, for sharing your thoughts and comments. And we'll be on next week. As always. Josh, thank you. And we'll see everyone else around in the community. Thank you for
1: listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Uh, It also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well.